thanks to Audible.com, the foremost provider of audiobooks, for supporting today's episode. Answers listeners can get a free 30-day trial by going to audible.com slash fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool, and he's also the advisor on The Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Hello, Allison. Bro, how are you doing today? Just groovy. How are you? I'm good. Whether you're saving for a house or college, heading into retirement, or sitting on an emergency fund, your options for stashing a huge pile of cash are less than super profitable. Womp womp. But you do have options. In today's episode, we're going to explain a few strategies for parking large amounts of money when the stock market isn't an option. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Today's Answers Answers comes to us from Tom in Dayton. He recently listened to our Broido Bond-themed podcast, thought it was awesome, and wrote in with this question. My retirement investments are 100% in stocks, and not because I am a 10-year-old who used the Formula 110 age. My reasoning is simple. I have a defined pension benefit through my employer and contribute monthly to a deferred compensation plan that offers guaranteed annuities. Annuities, I know, but I have no kids, and these are offered through the rather respectable nonprofit company TIAA. I've heard of it. Yeah. Given these facts, I have determined I have no need for bonds in my retirement portfolio. What am I missing? Well, Tom, uh, I think you're actually on the right track. Let me unpack a couple of things that you pointed out. You mentioned the, um, <laughs> you said you're not a 10 year old who used the formula of 110 minus your age. And that's because in a previous episode, we used as a guideline for determining how much you should have in the stock market, start with 110 minus your age. And that gives you a, a rough area. So if you're 50 years old, 110 minus 50 equals 60, you would have 60% in the stock market. And is that actually, sorry, is that 60% of your total net worth or 60% of your investable portfolio? And your, your investable portfolio. Okay. And it's kind of conservative, um, but it's a good starting point for some people. So now he's talking about his defined benefit pension. And that's that traditional pension we always talked about. You would retire, you'd get a check in the mail every month from your employer until you died. An annuity is pretty much the same thing. You give your money to an insurance company, and then they send you a check every month until you die. You might ask, well, what are these folks investing that money in to provide those payments? Guess what they are? Stocks! No. Oh. Bonds. Bonds! So, for to to think of your defined benefit pension or annuity as like a bond, it makes total sense. And if you think about it, why would you even have bonds in your portfolio? You want a little bit of stability, and you want a little bit of interest. Annuities and pensions do the same thing. We all have a little bit of this, by the way. It's in the form of Social Security. When we take our Social Security, we're going to get that payment every month until we die. In fact, some people, like John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, thinks that you should factor your Social Security into your asset allocation. So you would have to think, well, how would you do that? Well, you think, okay, how much money is my Social Security worth? Think about in terms of how much you'd have to pay an insurance company to provide that monthly benefit. You're talking about actually between $500,000 and $800,000, depending on your Social Security benefit. That's a big asset, and you already have it pretty safe. So, I think our fellow here is on the right track. Here are the guidelines I would use. First of all, to the extent that your must-pay expenses in retirement are going to be covered by Social Security, pension, annuity, if all that's taken care of, you can be aggressive as you want with the rest of your portfolio. If you still have some expenses you need to cover from your portfolio, you've got to play it a little safer. And also, he didn't mention his age. 
I don't know if he's far from retirement or close to retirement. But one risk of having a portfolio 100% in stocks is, let's say he wants to retire in five years, but then the stock market tanks. If he would still have to rely on part of his portfolio to retire, then his plans are going to have to be delayed. In that situation, he might want to play it a little safer with some of his portfolio. Could be bonds, could be cash, as we'll talk about soon. But that would be another reason why to play it a little safer. Otherwise, I think he's on the right track. Hey, way to go, Tom. You get a thumbs up from Robert Brokamp. Ting! I don't know. Robert Brokamp approved. Robert <laughs> Brokamp approved. One thing I didn't mention, there's actually a fellow by the name of Wade Fowle who's considered like a leading thinker in the world of retirement planning. And he's written some papers about how people actually should rely on annuities rather than bonds because bonds do fluctuate in value. You don't know exactly how much interest you're going to earn in the future. And if you live a long time, you might spend all your bonds. Whereas with these annuities, a pension, Social Security, you cannot live them. They take care of that longevity rest. For some people, it's actually better to replace all their bonds with an annuity. Right. And people generally, I feel they think that the annuity annuities are like a four letter word. But as we've talked in previous episodes, not all annuities are equal. Right. And this is the straight annuity where you just hand over a lump sum and then you get income every month. Now, there are more complicated annuities, variable annuities, equity index annuities. Those are things that are getting, um, you're getting a trickier territory there, certainly higher expenses. They might make sense. But for most people, they don't. But for a straight income annuity, I certainly plan to buy one when I'm older. Oh, wow. Quite the endorsement. I do, because here's why. Uh, Studies have shown that the more guaranteed income you have in retirement, the more peace of mind you'll have. So, you can buy that with an annuity. Also, as we get older, we have cognitive issues. Something like half of 80-year-olds have some sort of cognitive decline that make it difficult to manage money. If you've handed over this lump sum of money to the insurance company and you can't get any more than that monthly check, it's okay because even if you go a little batty, you can't mess it up. <laughs> and I certainly plan on going a little batty. I think you're going to go a lot batty. I think you're you're already starting at a little batty. Yeah. And so, yeah. but in a good way. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And the final reason, too, would be if my wife outlives me, which if genetics and personal hygiene are any indication, that will happen. She has no interest in managing money, and I'm going to put it in my will that when I pass away and she's older, she should buy an income annuity. That way, she has that guaranteed income coming in, and she doesn't have to worry about it. That dirty, dirty money. <laughs> Somehow my finances will grow with the interest I show in the interest it gives me. For all of our savvy listeners, at some point in your life, believe me, you will have a big pile of cash. It might be your emergency fund, or it might be earmarked for college tuition or a mortgage. And if you need to access it in the next three to five years, you do not want it in the stock market. It's painful to look at a huge pile of cash and just see it sitting there and not growing, especially since the interest rate in your savings account is pretty much mathematically close to zero as it can get. So, where can you put it? Pro is here with some options. Yay! Yay! All right, first, did I miss anything as far as why people typically have massive piles of cash? No, that's the, those are the big reasons. Number one, the emergency fund. And we're talking, like, in case there's an unexpected big ticket expense, your roof collapses or your car goes completely kaput, something like that. You lose your job. You need to have some money to live off of. Um, and, and the rule of thumb on that is three to six months of required expenses. But if you're single or married with no kids, you don't have a mortgage, you can play it pretty safe in terms of your emergency fund. It can be pretty small. 
if you have kids, if you have a mortgage, if you have a job where you're not so sure about your security, maybe you should have a bigger emergency fund. So that's one. The other one is money you need in the next two to five years. Could be to buy a house, could be to buy a car, could be because your kid's in college. Um, and the reason why you wouldn't put in the stock market, well, the stock market, as you may have heard, goes down every once in a while. No. Yes. I only believe in stock markets that go up. It's the truth. And according to a, a research from American Funds, they looked at the stock market from 1900 to the end of 2014. Roughly speaking, the market goes down 10% about once a year, and it goes down 15% or more about once every two years. If you look at it on a calendar year basis, the market is down about once every four years. But when it goes down, it can be significant. And I've told the story before about a fellow I know who had all his daughter's college money in the stock market. She was a senior in high school. 2000 happens, and half the, half the money goes away. Brutal. 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 So you got to have it nice and safe. But that doesn't mean you have to earn nothing. I mean, if you look at the average interest rate on a checking account these days, it literally is 0.01. It's nothing. <laughs> um, but if you put in a little bit more effort, you can get a little bit higher interest rate. So I looked at uh, NerdWallet and Bankrate to see what's available out there. And it depends on where you live, So because some banks are licensed to operate in your area or not. But generally speaking, if you're going for a high-yield high yield savings rate, you can get close to 1%. A one-year CD, 1.25%, and all on the way up to a five-year CD of 2%. Okay, uh, this is where I need to... like. Uh, be a little ask a little embarrassing question, sure. but I don't really know what a CD is. So a CD is a certificate of deposit, right? And the reason why they earn they yield a little extra return is because you're locking that money up. So if you buy a three year CD and you can get a rate of about one and a half percent on that, you have to plan on leaving that money there. That doesn't necessarily mean you can't get it, but you'll probably pay a penalty of like three months interest or something like that if you have to touch it. So. So basically, it's just setting money aside with your bank, and right. your bank's like, "I'm going to take this, and I'm going to have some fun with your money. You don't get it, right? Um, until you cash it in again when it expires, kind of like a bond. Right. It's exactly like a bond. Oh, you're, it's exactly because like that's a bond. what you're, you're lending the money to the bank, yeah. and the bank turns around and lends it to other folks at a slightly higher rate. Um, and the good thing about a CD is to consider like it's a good option if you have a certain known expense. So let's say you have that senior in high school, and you have a certain amount set away for college. You buy a one-year, two-year, three-year, four-year CD. So every year, right before you have to pay that tuition bill, some of that money comes due. And by locking up some of that longer-term money, you can earn a little bit of extra interest. But you st can still cash it in in a case of an emergency. It depends. You have, to, you have to look at the terms of the bank that's offering the CD. And the other good thing about these high-yield savings accounts and CDs is that they're FDIC insured, which makes people feel pretty good. And um, there's actually more insurance available than people think. The limit is 250000 per account per title. So you could have up to that amount in a single account at a bank, and then a whole other amount if you have a joint account, and a whole other amount if you have like an IRA CD. There's actually, you can go to the FDIC's website, it's fdic.gov slash ED, which stands for your electronic deposit insurance estimator. You put in your banks and your different accounts, it'll tell you how much of your deposits are insured. So it's pretty easy to get enough FDIC insurance. So that's all pretty attractive stuff, but let's talk about some of the other alternatives that people look at. 
one thing that people look at in terms of cash are what they'll just say money markets. And one thing that people don't understand is the difference between money market accounts and money market funds. Money market accounts are offered by banks. They are FDIC insured. They're usually a little higher interest rate than a normal savings account, but you don't have as much access to the money. So the bank might say, we're going to pay you a little extra than on a normal checking or savings account, but you can only write three checks on it every month. Okay, yeah. So you have to be willing to lock it up. Money market fund is offered by mutual fund companies. They are not FDIC insured. They might have a slightly higher interest rate, except that starting in October of this year, there are going to be new rules about money market funds based on what happened in 2008. Money market funds, the attraction of those has always been that they have a net asset value, a price of $1. So you know what it's worth. It's always worth a dollar per share. In the financial crisis of 2008, one of the bigger funds, what they call, broke the buck. They could no longer offer it as a dollar and they had to limit redemptions. And up to 20 other mutual money market funds came close to doing that. So since then, the SEC has come up with new rules that take effect in this October that basically say some types of money market funds will fluctuate in value. It may not be $1 per share. Also, during times of economic stress, they may charge redemption fees, and they may limit your access to the money. Because the problem with the one fund that broke the buck was everyone called in and said, I want my money back. Bank run, huh? So if you have a money market fund, and it might be in your brokerage account, that's your cash equivalent, it might be the cash option in your 401k or 403b, you need to find out what the new rule is going to be on that fund because it's going to be very different for many of these funds. What are some other options for me to do with my huge pile of cash? Huge pile of cash, right. In some retirement accounts, meaning like 401ks and 403bs, the cash option might be something called a stable value fund or a guaranteed investment contract. And those often yield higher than a typical money market fund or cash, so maybe a percentage point higher. So that's something to look at, not for your emergency fund, of course, because you can't tap that account, but if you're looking to have cash on the side, maybe because you are planning to retire in a couple of years and you want to have that cash set aside, that's a good place to look. You could look at individual bonds. We talked about that in the previous episode. I looked at my brokerage account today, and I found investment-grade bonds that mature in four to five years that yield anywhere from 2.3% to over 3%. Certainly better than earning 1% if you're willing to put in the effort to find the individual bonds. There are short-term bond funds that are often marketed or discussed as alternatives to cash. I have to say, though, uh, for the most part, I'm not a big fan of these. Uh, some of the most common, one of the biggest is uh, PIMCO ETF with the ticker of MINT, M-I-N-T. Cute. Yes, it's very cute. Subtle. Right. And the yield on it is attractive. I mean, it is about 1%. But because it is a short-term bond fund, it will fluctuate in value. Um, Vanguard has one as well. The ticker is VUBFX. Still yield maybe 0.7, 0.8. I'm not sure why people would turn to these if they can just go get a CD that's yielding 1.25 mm-hmm. or 1.5 percent. Except that the only alternative, or the only reason why you would do that, is like I said about the CD, you're supposed to leave it alone. If you have a bond fund or an ETF, you just go to your brokerage account and you sell it and you get the cash. So there's some liquidity advantages there. But for the most part, avoid those. Some people look for extremely higher yielding bond funds. 
might be junk bond funds. Not very safe. Most of those went down about 25 30% in 2008. There's another one called a bank loan fund, which sounds safe, right? Uh, but it's actually banks making direct loans to corporations who don't have the best credit quality. So Fidelity has one, and it's yielding over 4%. And it's been stable generally, except in times of stress, like 2008, it went down 17%. So if you are looking to stretch for the yield by going into sort of these shorter-term bond funds, floating rate ones is another one that people find attractive because the rate on the bonds in there go up if interest rates grow up. And a lot of people are afraid of that. If interest rates go up, what am I going to do if I've already locked in my 1% with something? These will go up, but the credit quality is not so great. If you're looking at one of these funds, one of the best things to do is look at how it performed in 2008, and you'll see in times of stress what kind of performance you could expect. So you actually wrote an article for, for Rule Your Retirement that my husband very much took to heart, and that was using your Roth IRA for your to stash your emergency fund. Right. Most of us don't have huge emergencies that happen rather frequently. Most of us maintain our jobs. Um, so having a huge pile of cash on the side waiting for an emergency might be a waste. Um, the great thing about a Roth IRA is even if you're not 59 and a half, you can take out the money you contributed tax and penalty free. If there's any growth and you take that out before 59 and a half, you'll have to pay tax and penalty. And I wrote about doing this because I also didn't want to have a whole bunch of cash sitting there do nothing. I actually have a document in which I have sort of like a hierarchy of places where I will go for money in case I lose my job or I have such a big ticket expense that I, I, I don't have enough cash on the side. And the Roth IRA is a great opportunity that because it grows tax-free if you never use it, but if you do need it, it's there. Same, by the way, is for people who are looking for an alternative to 529s to saving for college. Because you can put that money in. If your son or daughter doesn't go to college or they get a scholarship, you can leave it alone. But if you need it, you can't access it. What should people like? What should someone's next step be? Is it go check with their bank and see what CDs are being offered? Or this so what you said kind of seems like a lot of work to squeeze like another like point nine less than a percent of um, yield out of my pile of cash. So is just going to the bank and saying, hey, what kind of CDs you got lately? Is that like an easy good first place to start? You could, but you, chances are your local bricks and mortar bank won't have the highest rates. That's how like when you go to NerdWallet and bank rate. When you see these other banks and they're offered offering online only accounts, the reason they can do that is because they don't have to pay for the banks and the tellers and everything like that. So if it's money you don't need immediately, like you're checking out to pay your your electricity bills and stuff like that, go to Bankrate or NerdWallet. Look for a good interest rate there. And it may not. And if you're talking like three thousand dollars. And by the way, Bankrate and NerdWallet they compare sites for you. You're right. not going to get it. You're not going to get an account with NerdWallet or Bankrate. They're going to tell you who's got the best rates. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, if you're talking about three thousand dollars, it's not a big deal. If you have, for example, a uh, someone who came to me who does have a senior in high school, and said, "I know you always tell people to put money you need in the next few years in cash and not in the stock market, but." When you add up four years worth of college education and it's already saved, he said, "If I have to put two hundred thousand dollars in cash, I think I'll vomit." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, if you've got that much in cash, earning an extra one percent on that over two or three or four years—that's that's not a, bad. That's a significant amount of money. Yeah. Um, so, I think it's worth the effort to do that. 
Um, and my final point is, one of the best ways to maximize your cash is to get rid of it, and that is spend it on something else. For example, if you have debt and you're earning 1% on your cash, it may not make sense to have that cash when you're also paying 3.5% on a car loan, or 3.7% on your mortgage, or 48% on your student loan, or 15% on your credit card. You should use that cash, pay off the debt, that will lower your monthly payments. That payment, that let's say you pay off your car loan, and you're paying $300 a month. You pay it off, now you don't have that $300 payment, but now you send that automatically to a high-yield savings account, so that allows you to build up your cash again. But from a numbers perspective, it just doesn't make sense to hold cash when you have debt out there. And then finally, for those who are getting close to retirement and haven't yet taken Social Security, one of the things you should do, or consider doing at least, is living off your cash in your portfolio as long as possible and delaying Social Security as long as possible, because for every year you delay it, the benefit grows 7 to 8%, and that's guaranteed. So the more you can live off whatever you have sitting in your bank earning nothing and putting off Social Security, the better off you're going to be. And final offer, if you've got a big pile of cash and you don't know where to put it, Bro and I will babysit it for you. <laughs> oh, I have ideas. I have, I have. I have lots of ideas for your money. <laughs> Before we head to the mailbag once again for some listener feedback, I want to give a shout out to Audible.com for sponsoring today's episode. Yay! Yay! Audible.com is a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 250000 thousand downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and even periodicals. So, if you're like me, and you still haven't gotten around yet to reading The Millionaire Next Door, even though Bro mentions it just about every episode, you can visit audible.com slash fool and get a free 30-day trial. I'll get around to reading it someday, is but it I feel like audible? I don't need to. It is on Audible. Is on, yeah. I highly recommend it. So we get a lot of emails from you guys uh, offering feedback or ideas or disagreeing with us. And so we're going to uh, read a few of your letters here today. I think that sounds like fun, don't you, bro? Oh, I think it'll be great. All right, let's start with Eric from Knoxville. He heard our episode about Jimmy Buffett, and he wrote in to say that in the mid-1980s, Jimmy was invited to sing the national anthem in place of the Gator Band at a... University of Florida game. He played on the Gator Band. And he said, I should preface this by saying, I like Jimmy Buffett. He's standard music fair in Florida. However, his rendition of the national anthem was the worst I've ever heard. I mean, there's no way for me to describe how bad it was. I have a hard time believing he was even sober for the event. He probably wasn't. He probably wasn't, let's be honest. This was in the 80s, by the way. So he closes by saying, I'm glad to know he was able to bounce back and make a go of it because if he was judged by that one performance, he'd be living under a bridge someplace. I think we talked about this after we had our Jimmy Buffett episode. His voice is not classically attractive. (laughs) It's about his his lifestyle and his, you know, have fun lyrics and stuff like that. I think I also mentioned another fellow Floridian, and I was, I am a Floridian. You mentioned another Floridian? Yes, we talked about it. Tom Petty. Petty, Tom Petty was the other guy. He was like, if he were singing in a church choir, he would not be making it. But for some reason, people love that voice. I'm on board with Tom Petty. I loves me some Tom Petty. Rick, you look Uh, like you're about to say something. Star Spangled Banner is a very difficult song. I just want to point that out. Jimmy Buffett apologist, Rick Engdahl. <laughs> He's says, no Enrico Palazzo, that's for sure. You try and drink a six-pack of Margaritaville <laughs> branded margarita whatever and then go sing the national anthem. Is that what you're saying? 
I'm just saying that people like Jimmy Buffett and and, and uh, Tom Petty should not be singing the national anthem. That's yeah. It. It's not their kind of music. No, <laughs> we can hear we can hear my daughter Hannah in the background there when Rick is talking. She's visiting the studio today. Say hi to Mama. Hi, get your finger out of your nose. <laughs> and put it in someone else's. Yeah, put it in Mr. Rick's. No. <laughs> All right. Next email comes to us from Jarrett. He was listening to our Luffy Awards episode. This is mm-hmm. a little bit back. And he writes that he wholeheartedly disagrees with Options House recommendation that we made during our Luffy Awards. Um, I don't want to be like, you know, whatever, but it was Dayana who made the recommendation. So this one's not on us. This is on Dayana and NerdWallet, but whatever, that's fine. So Jarrett writes, as someone that used an Options House account at the same time as TD Ameritrade, I want to say that TDA is light years ahead in terms of research tools, ease of use, and especially, most importantly, customer service. Well, I don't want to necessarily endorse TD Ameritrade, but it is the provider of the side brokerage account in our 401k. And I did find it very easy to look for bonds as I was looking for them. And they provide a Moody's report on the credit quality of the bond. So I have to say, I did find it very helpful. Yeah. Maybe TD Ameritrade would like to sponsor a few episodes of Molly Fool Answers, and then we can speak more lovingly of them. This uh, next email comes from Tyler from Charlottesville. And Tyler writes, after listening to our Negotiating with Cable Companies and the Cutting Your Cord episode, mm-hmm. a classic. I particularly enjoy that episode because I was the expert, not bro. It was great. Um, so Tyler writes that uh, he he wanted to offer some advice for another way or another tactic to use to negotiate your bill, and he basically says it's um, it's it's based on how different incentives produce totally different outcomes. So he says, you know, if you call your Comcast if you call Comcast to negotiate your bill, you will reach a salesperson who is almost entirely compensated based on commission. So this gives the employee precisely zero incentive to give you a deal on your bill. Instead, Tyler says, in most decent-sized towns, they have a local Comcast office where customers can come do their business. I believe these clerical employees are compensated entirely with an hourly wage. So if you come repeat your negotiating tactics there in person, you will have no trouble renewing every year for whatever low new customer price you see. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if it's. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like it's easier to play hardball when it's on the phone and you're not looking someone in the face and you don't have like 40 people in line behind you all carrying their cable boxes and they're miserable. (laughs) And if you're just like, really, you could knock another five dollars off of that, and they're just like, sir, ma'am, I'm a ma'am, ma'am. That's true. That is true. I'll I'll vouch for that. Fact. Uh, I'll just say that my wife just plain old called up Verizon and said, you've you've got to do better. And there was some resistance. I love that. It's such a mom thing to say. You've got to do better. And eventually, she got $40 knocked off the bill. It did mean we have to sign a two-year commitment. Nice! But there's a possibility that we'll be moving. And she asked, well, what if I move somewhere where you don't offer your service? She said, well, then you're out of the contract. So, boom. There you go. Way to go, Mrs. Brokamp! Nice! Nice work. All right. Next question, our next email uh, comes from Damien. He says, uh, long-time listener to all the Motley Fool podcasts. Recently, you joked about someone getting an IRS tattoo in exchange for free income tax prep filing. I figured I'd write in to say that I'd be willing to get the tattoo if this deal was actually presented to me. Let me know if this deal is on the table. Well, we'll have to think about it. We'll have to talk to Megan. Yeah, we'll see what, The we'll resident see CPA, if she'd be willing to do the service. Maybe if you got Megan tattooed on you, she might do it for free. <laughs> we'll see. Something, a t- a, some, sort of, some sort of tribute to Megan might work. We'll circle back on that one, Damien. All right, last one. 
comes from Casey. Casey writes, keep up the great work. I love this podcast since it started, and I have learned some of the most practical financial info and tips on this podcast over the others. I assume it's quickly climbing the charts and putting pressure on Team Chris Hill, who gets the spotlight just about every day of the work week. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, Chris. We're coming for you. Casey also adds that, uh, if you remember, we talked about, or a listener wrote in and said that it was hilarious to listen to our show on Half Speed. And so, Casey recommended that we check out uh, the episode where we talk about taxes, um, a specific part that she thought, or he, sorry, um, that a specific part that Casey thought was pretty funny, and asked, please play a clip of this in next week's show. So... Are you ready? And this is totally oh self-indulgent. This is so self-indulgent, but I don't care. It's our show. So, <laughs> all right. Here we go. Must be recognized by the Alaska Eskimo Whaling Commission <laughs> as a whaling captain. Which I am not. I am not either. But if anyone out there is... Tell us about it. That's right. All right. Oh, my gosh. That is so funny and painful. <laughs> it's so self-indulgent, but it's so funny to hear. That was um, That is, by the way, that was from the uh, IRS publication that talks about charitable contributions, and you can't take a deduction for making contributions to a whaling captain as long as they are approved by whatever said they were the Eskimo whaling Whatever drunk bro said, he was right. He was absolutely right. All right, well, that's going to do it for the show. Uh, as you guys know, some of you know because you emailed us, our email is answers at fool.com. And also, we have another cool thing for you to check out. If you want to go to 401k.fool.com, we've put together a really cool website here at The Motley Fool to help you maximize your 401k. Uh, it's all free content. Uh, that's 401k.fool.com. Bro, did you have a hand in this site? I did have a little bit, but um, it was mostly the brainchild of some other really smart fools and several articles about 401ks in general, but also some very specific ones if you have a specific type of one, like if you have the thrift savings plan with the government. So lots of good information. All right. So there you go. Head to 401k.fool.com. Uh, again, you can email us at answers.fool.com. And if you have time you know, to head on over to iTunes and leave us a review, we really appreciate that. The show is edited gracefully by there Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on. This is a great program. I love it. I listen to it every Tuesday afternoon. (laughs) Charlie Rose. (laughs) There you go. Allison's mom approved. Molly Full Answers.